It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Oh. Okay. Oh, this smells so nice in here. It smells really good in here. Yeah. I want to know what that is. I want to eat that. Well, this is Black Squirrel. I come here all the time because it has coffee and used books and is a local independent shop. Which still exists, thank God. Yeah. And it smells delicious. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and what the hell is going on on the left. A little while back, I met up with esteemed backbencher David Moscrop in Ottawa. I wanted to get the pulse of the current political moment from a political theorist. David does a great job of looking at what's happening in the political landscape from a bird's eye view and helps us put the hot topics in context. He really makes you take a step back and look at the bigger picture. This is all for his noble quest to help us be less dumb about democracy, as in the title of his book. How difficult of a task this is, is something that is highly in question these days. While I asked David to meet up somewhere near Parliament Hill, he somehow interpreted this as a request to meet somewhere nowhere near the hill, which is how we ended up at the Black Squirrel, a coffee shop and bookstore in Ottawa's Sunnyside neighborhood. Dr. Freud might have something to say about David's misinterpretation here, but I will not comment. (laughs) During our conversation, David walks us through the struggle of being a political journalist in the age of content churn, clickbait, and the impact of algorithms on social media. But most importantly, David helps us get into what the hell is going on with Canada's political left. He also dares to offer us some political predictions, so you won't want to miss that. And as a bonus, in case for some reason you listen to this podcast and don't care about Canadian politics, we also list off famous Daves that we all know and love. Let's get into it. So, um, I am here sitting in the basement of 
Black Squirrel Books and Coffee is the name of the store. I don't and, actually. And tea. And tea. They have they have many things here. <laughs> um, sitting in the basement, which is better than it sounds, because we're surrounded by many mostly used, some very new looking books. But enough about the books. Um, I am here with David Mosgrip, podcaster, political scientist, and an all-star backbencher. You have traveled to Toronto to do the live show, and now we are coming to bother you in Ottawa. And which is so nice, especially in one of my favorite places, a used bookstore that sells coffee. Mm-hmm. What more can you possibly want? I had said to Aviva, completely as a joke, that we should do an entire episode of just naming famous Daves and rating famous Daves. So who are some of your favorite famous Daves? Well, David Byrne. David Byrne, a classic. I don't think you need anyone else after David Byrne. Uh, I mean, David Lynch. It's hard mm-hmm. not to, to at least appreciate David Lynch. Mm-hmm. How about David Cronenberg? What are your Cronenberg thoughts? I feel the same way about David Cronenberg as I do about David Lynch. I'm not convinced anybody loves... I feel like you appreciate David Cronenberg, mm-hmm. but don't love David Cronenberg. That is also how I feel. So I have seen enough Cronenberg to feel like I have an informed opinion, yeah. and that is definitely how I feel about it. Yeah, other famous Dave's... Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl? That's I feel like, like Dave Grohl is someone you can love. Um, other Dave's. David Fincher, The Social Network, great film. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, David Shore. David Shore. Creator of House. Huh. There's some political Daves. Well, there's the movie called Dave about the guy who, like, lies and becomes president or something. I don't Is actually... Kevin Klein? It's, it's somebody by... Yeah, Kevin Klein sounds right. Yeah. There's David Cameron. <laughs> right, David Cameron. Not, not a favorite Dave. No, David Peterson was a premier of Ontario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a Dave. Incidentally, one of the classic own goal Ontario moments, David Peterson, truly calling an early election, thinking that he could win a majority and then getting crushed. Dave Barry. Dave Barry. The, the classic uh, humorist writer. Many a dad read a lot of Dave Barry in the 80s and 90s. There was a show called Dave's World for a period with what's his name from Night Court. Night Court is a show that I've never watched, but I feel like I've seen it referenced on many other shows. Like, I think they talk about it on Arrested Development. I think that, but yeah, not a real Night Court head. You want a good segue into, sure. into our topics? So when I was a kid, high school kid, I was into politics because I was cool and I would rush home in the afternoon to watch question period in my basement and play Red Alert 2 Command and Conquer or Age of Empires and I would watch question period and then I would watch Night Court reruns (laughs) on TV because then it would be like the kind of like syndicated 90s shows. So you're into politics, you're a politics guy, you're a politics writer. Uh, I'm sorry or I'm happy for you depending on the kind of day that you're having. Yeah. What's that like these days? I know you just wrote like a, a big newsletter kind of to that effect. Most things about it are miserable. I do it because there are moments where I really like doing it, and I do it because we need people to do it, especially on the left, mm. uh, especially on the left for those of us who can get into the mainstream because otherwise it's going to be dominated by corporate centrists and right-wing blowhards. So if you're a leftist who can get mainstream politics writing space, you should be doing that work. I find it miserable, though, because the nature of the beast is such that you have to produce an awful lot of stuff really quickly to get to scale. Mm -hmm. Now, I've had a a great opportunity in my life to work with fantastic editors, great publications. I've never been treated poorly by anybody. I've been paid well. I'm in a remarkably privileged position compared to a lot of my contemporaries. But um, you end up churning out fast stuff that you haven't really been able to fully think about. It gets torqued online for or against. you know, generates a, a deluge of vitriol, 
and it's precarious, even if you are well positioned. So it is a sort of circle of hell in the best of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Like the online vitriol specifically, I think is something that is like a relatively new problem. The internet's been around now like for decades, but yeah. in terms Thanks of like, <laughs> thanks to, yeah, Al Gore's rhythm, I believe they called it on the, the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. You know how Al Gore invented the internet? Well, he also invented a rhythm for it. It's a powerful rhythm. It's called the Al Gore rhythm. But I think like, when we talk about online vitriol, like that is a relatively within the past like 10, 15 years problem. But some of these other things, like I think, I'm actually just not sure. Like, is this issue of having to turn things around like also relatively new? Or was there like some sort of golden era for political writing where in theory, like you had more time and space to investigate things in depth and really put thought and heft into everything you wrote? I think it depends on the kind of writer. I mean, I, I know that for a lot of journalists, reporters, feature writers, their pace is really picked up because they're doing more with less. That is indirectly an internet thing, but it's largely a collapse of the industry thing. Yeah. For opinion writers, there are years where you know opinion writers would write you know, a couple of pieces a week, for instance. Mm -hmm. But if you're a freelancer in a fragmented uh, space and you're trying to make a living, you might end up having to write three, four, even five pieces a week. Last week I wrote six. And that's a silly amount of stuff to write. And I'm lucky that I can process information pretty quickly, I have a good framework for stuff, I know people I can call so I can produce stuff fairly quickly. But it, it, it's not a recipe for producing the best stuff. That, that said, I don't believe there's a, any kind of golden era of media. If there was, it was very short and accidental and exclusive. That's what I was thinking, yeah. And that it was golden for only a certain yeah. amount of people who could even get in in the first place. Who knows if I would have been them. I mean, if it hadn't been for the internet, I might well never have become a politics writer. So there's a little bit of a paradox in there. It was, you know, it was essentially baked in because I was able to work the internet to become a politics writer, largely through, um, among other things, social media. But it is the vitriol thing, I will say this real quick, is getting worse because I've been doing this off and on since, I don't know, like 2010, 2011, something like that. And it used to be, oh, you get a couple of nasty emails from mm -hmm. people. But now you'll get hundreds, if not thousands of things from people on email, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, ever. If people are coming at you on LinkedIn, you know it's gotten bad. Because <laughs> yeah. first of all, I didn't really think anybody used LinkedIn. But if the trolls are finding you on LinkedIn, you know we've really gone beyond the vent horizon. Yeah. You know? This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. You really have to just take care of yourself. Nobody else is going to take care of you for you. One way to go about doing that is integrating AG1 into your daily routine. I take it every morning to make sure I'm getting all the nutrients that I need. Taking AG1 is a very easy habit to incorporate into your day. You just mix up your AG1 with water and it tastes like pretty good. It's got hints of vanilla, a little fruitiness to it. It's really not so bad. Another great alternative is to toss a scoop of AG1 into a smoothie. Just blend it up with all your favorite fruits, maybe some yogurt, and it's another really healthy way to get in all your nutrients. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com backbench. That's athleticgreens.com backbench. Check it out. It almost feels like there's this rapid acceleration towards just like content churn of like, we want clickbaity headlines, we want a lot of content, but none of it is very good. 
I don't know who in terms of actual readers wants that. It seems very advertiser driven, but it also seems like a bubble that will pop at some point. Like, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, people say they don't want this stuff in the same way they say they don't want negative ads, but they seem to be drawn to them like a moth to a flame. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the problem is, you know, people will tell you they want one thing, but then their revealed preferences suggest that they actually want another. They just mm -hmm. don't want to admit that that's what they want. Incidentally, you know the thing I read the most is on the internet? Video game articles. Huh. I want to read about what's coming out, what's out, is it good, is it bad, how do you solve this thing, how do you get star fruit in Stardew Valley? Like, this is, you know, it's not like I wake up in the morning and it's like, I'm going to read every single thing on, you know, Lapham's Quarterly or the New York Review. It's like, I do that sometimes. But I wake up and I'm like, I need to go to Kotaku and figure out how to get star fruit in Stardew Valley because it's really bothering me. Um, so, but, but then you look at these folks, you go to their byline at the bottom, it's like Johnny Atari has written 7,000 articles. He's been with us for six months. You know, they, they, they produce a lot of stuff, but the fact is people are clicking on these things. Mm -hmm. You know, volume has a kind of quality of its own. You know, as they say, at some point, quantity takes on a quality of its mm -hmm. own, and that's definitely happening. But the future could be a more decentralized internet, mm -hmm. which might create some hope, where, you know, it's not just a one-stop shop and you've got to be on Twitter. You, you can do Mastodon and Post and maybe Twitter and here or there. Substack is a fascinating model that I quite like. They're trying to emulate Twitter now with a notes feature. Uh, I say this as someone who has a, a, an account and, and makes money off of it. I make about an annualized gross revenue right now of about $13,000, mm -hmm. right? And I opened it in October and I post once a week to open for everybody. But you own your list on Substack. So if you're a creator and you wanna, first of all, monetize your stuff, now you can do that directly because people can send you money on Substack. Mm -hmm. but, but you also have the list. Those emails are your emails. Mm -hmm. It's not true of Twitter. If Twitter closes tomorrow or they boot yeah, you or whatever, you lose all that stuff. Your, yeah, it's all gone. But it's not, it's not true of Substack. So Substack is an interesting model as well and, and there's gonna be other competing spaces. So maybe that's the future, I don't know. It, much like the media, it's a state of considerable flux and the future isn't written yet mm -hmm. but the battle is going to be as to whether or not creators can actually get decent money for the work they do because we do an awful lot of work for free we've talked a fair bit about how the internet and like broader changes in the media ecosystem in this country maybe have like affected the writing and, and content production side of things and we've talked a little bit as well like there was the mention of just the online vitriol problem is really getting worse what have been maybe some broader shifts in the way that people engage with politics that you've seen over the i think you said since 2010 over the you know decade and a bit that you've been working in this space i mean there's definitely a growing polarization and polarization isn't inherently bad but it's it's of a toxic variety. There's also growing radicalization through sort of networking of extremism that happens online, and, and not just through, you know, 4chan, which is the first thing that comes to mind, but even through YouTube, right? I mean, it, it can be way more mainstream than you think, uh, and Twitter and elsewhere. So that has really picked up. It's also intersecting with big money, big dodgy money in, in the United States and elsewhere. That's been a, a part of it and quite a nasty one. And the flooding of bots has become sort of intolerable and in other inorganic accounts, sock puppets and so on. So that's become much, much worse. And it's made the spaces deeply inhospitable and just mm -hmm. not a lot of fun. So that, that's really picking up quite a bit. And of course the algorithms have come to dominate in such a way that they're getting quite good at knowing what drives content and keeps eyeballs locked mm -hmm. on a site, which is great for Twitter who wants advertisers and lousy for people who just want to go online and see their friends or talk about things. That is all picked up. So it's getting worse. It's all mm -hmm. getting worse. And I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. And I don't think we're ready to 
properly deal with it, let mm -hmm. alone fix it. Yeah, and in terms of like how that trickles into, because obviously it's like you can't really delineate anymore between online and real life, yeah. right? They're they're the same. It's it's part of one life. But in terms of how this manifests in people's sort of like touching grass engagements, let's say, or like real life spaces, like and how people vote and how people engage in that dimension, like. I feel like there's been a bit of a leakage of this oh, yeah. just sort of like bad online environment like into the real world because it isn't like a, a walled off sector that doesn't affect the way that we think and interact in other spaces. What's your take on that? Oh, it absolutely has. I mean, you, absent the internet, I don't think you get the convoy that occupied Ottawa and, mm -hmm. and tried to occupy Toronto, for instance. I'm not convinced you get Trump outside the internet. Mm. I, I think really that is sort of a not that the U.S. hasn't had big populists in the past, you know, uh, toxic authoritarian populists, it has, lots of them, but I don't think you get a Trump presidency absent the internet. And so I, I do think it, it ends up becoming a really important networking mobilization tool uh, that spills out into the world in very toxic, concrete ways that, mm -hmm. that tends to manifest at its worst on the, on the right. I mean, someone once you know, said to me recently, I was doing TV, he said, well, are you saying bad when the right wing does it and good when the left does it? My answer was more like, yeah, pretty much. Because, you know, we should straight up say when the left does these things, it becomes a very different sort of thing than mm -hmm. when the toxic kind of right does and you get the convoy, you get Trump. Uh, and that, I think, is, is very much internet phenomenon. Again, it becomes a, a networking function and a, and a mobilization function and a, an anger, resentment, mm -hmm. pressure cooker that has contributed to a lot of the sort of toxic, deep anger and resentment mm -hmm. that's floating around. Yeah, it's funny because, like, when people come with that response of like, oh, like, are you holding the left and the right to different standards? Like, I think it's it's a question that like is not comparing two actual things that are happening, yeah. right? It's like you're comparing a thing that is happening to a hypothetical situation that doesn't exist, right? Where we don't have an organized left that is united and like mobilized in the way that you see on the right in the same way. And so I think like it's hard for me to say, I think that there are certain things that the right does and certain like not even so much actions, but like modes of discussing things that I think like are also bad when they happen on the left, just in terms of like people completely talking past one yeah. another, right? That is something that is not exclusive to the right, like a complete unwillingness to engage. Like that's something that exists on the left as well. Ooh, tell me about it. Right? Like you see it with leftists between each other, I think is where you see it the most. Truly, and I mean the left has organization problems. The left is also deeply annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I've just come to find the left largely cloying, obnoxious, petty, and actually, I, I'm really grappling with, with something quite serious, and it's not something that we talk about much in public, in part because it's almost impossible to talk about in public, but I think we need to. And that's what the nature of the contemporary left is as a movement. And, and we ought to be having a discussion about the role of identity politics in the left, and the role of, uh, of class politics in the left, and the, the question is, okay, well, how much has the left gone to identity politics and how much has it abandoned class politics mm -hmm. and how do you balance those things? Because I think the left should be involved in identity politics. I don't think it should be involved in a kind of toxic grievance politics that is deeply superficial and performative, mm -hmm. but it ought to be involved in the struggles uh, for justice across identity categories. But it's very hard to manage that. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not going super well, mm -hmm. and it's creating these cleavages. Uh, at the same time, the left has largely abandoned working class folks, and those, mm -hmm. go, those folks are going to the right. They're going to Trump, they're going to Polyev, they're going to those camps. And, and I don't think we've sort of figured out how to deal with that 
sufficiently well, mm -hmm. and we haven't even really been able to talk about. It. Like, imagine having trying to have that conversation it's like on Twitter. Couldn't do it. You you wouldn't get past the first sentence. And 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 this isn't a cancel culture whinging thing. It's, it's genuinely like we need to have a conversation about how all of these groups that ought to be respected, whose rights we need to protect in advance, fit into a tent that can also do class politics in a productive way that brings working class folks mm -hmm. on board. I don't know how to do that. No, yeah. But it's, it's a conversation we need to have. The coalition building is not happening in it's the way that happening. it needs to. And like, there's a reason why people think this, right? It's, it's like, I understand why people have this reaction of like you say, we need to integrate class politics and maybe some of the way that like leftist you know, political parties or groups deploy identity politics is actually not that helpful. And people hear the criticism of identity politics and they like assume bad faith, right? And they're right. not like wrong to assume bad faith. I think yeah. so often when people assume bad faith, it's because in a majority of conversations that they're a party to, especially online, bad faith is what they're actually being met 100%. with, right? And so in a almost like self-protective way, people want to put their guard up and not have those kind of real conversations. Yeah. And I think it's like, it is a conversation that needs to be had because I think that there are a lot of people who feel, you know, in, including people who are like from marginalized groups, right? That like the way that identity politics get deployed on the left is like unhelpful and kind of like sometimes patronizing mm -hmm. and has a lot more to do with sort of like representation of the relatively better off people within these sort of marginalized groups yeah. as opposed to like true engagement with the people who are the most marginalized. I wanted to talk about federal politics, the state of the parties, and like talk about the NDP a little bit. You mentioned in your email, you know, as a possible thing we could discuss the next federal election, what's going to happen? And you kind of said 2024 question mark. And I was interested in that because you are not the first person I've talked to over the past couple of weeks. I've had a couple of people that I know from like very different sort of places in my life bring up, you know, the election might happen next year as opposed to 2025. So I was just curious, like, what made you think that? Because it seems like that would hinge on the NDP no longer being willing to prop up the government. Or the liberals deciding they no longer want to be propped up. Mm, that too. And this is, you know, I, I'm cynical about this because I've been following politics for, for pretty much my entire life. And it makes you cynical. And, and another word for cynical in that context is just, you know, realist. Because it, there is a true kind of calculation that's being done every day directly or indirectly, uh, you know, do we want the government to exist another day, right? And, and if, if the liberals went up in the polls and they thought they could secure a majority tomorrow, you know, soon they would say, okay, off to the races we go. They would find a way to have an election. In the same way that if the NDP was surging in the polls and they decided that this is no longer our train, we're going to get off it, they'd find a way to end the agreement. These things exist as long as, as there's a kind of stasis. If that stasis forever breaks, then all bets are off. Right now, the conservatives are doing fairly well, and the liberals are flagging a little bit. So I think it's probably stable for the moment. So it's entirely possible it happened that we could have an election earlier. It would be very unusual for a minority parliament to last four years. Mm -hmm. They typically don't. So history kind of militates against that outcome of a four-year parliament as well. And that all adds up to 2024 is a not unreasonable bet. But I think a lot of folks would much rather we just wait till 2025 because mm -hmm. they don't want another election, and that's entirely fair too. Yeah, I totally get that. We had two, you know, in two years, you know, 2019, 2021, during not so great times, 
fair enough, but it's entirely possible we're off to a race in, in 2024. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually, I had not considered the Liberals wanting to call. I'm thinking about in 2021 when they thought they had a good thing going of like, we're going to call it and we're going to try and win a majority. Yeah. And then they just ended up with exactly the same result. Now it seems almost certain that they would end up with a worse result unless something really strange happens. It depends on, I mean, this is what's so screwed up about this country. I mean, there's a lot of things screwed up about this country, <laughs> but one of them is the, the way the electoral system works is it's called single-member plurality or first-past-the-post. You don't need a majority of votes, you just need the most votes of folks running. And to form government, you could do it with, say, you know, mid-30% globally. Mm. Yeah, which is what has been happening, I think, yeah. the past couple of elections. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in fact, fewer votes than the other yeah. party, right? So the Liberals, both in 2019 and 2021, had fewer votes than the Conservatives. Previously, that had only happened twice in Canadian history. It happened twice in a row in the last two elections, because the Liberals are very, very good, deliberately good, at maximizing what they call vote efficiency. So, you know, you think a vote is a vote is a vote. That's not true. Mm -hmm. uh, one vote over here might be worth more than one vote over there. The Liberals are really good at finding the votes that are efficient and that they can do the most with. So, which means that they win with pretty narrow margins and even fewer votes than their opponents, but they still form government. Mm -hmm. And for the Conservatives, it's hard to form government because they tend to have fewer dance partners and their vote is less efficient, at least now. Mm -hmm. So the Liberals have a huge advantage there. So they could, you know, eke out a win even though they're behind in the polls like they did the last two times. Mm -hmm. So it's part of, again, what people like me kind of look at the electoral system and say, this isn't a good bargain because you got a party over here that knows it can win with 18% of the voting population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you and factor go, in turnout, yeah. yeah. They go postal code to postal code to do that. Yeah, I mean, I forget like what the sort of, because they have like a very sophisticated way that they find their vote and they, you know, they prioritize according to like the likelihood that people actually turn out and all of these things that I think they cribbed from like the Obama era 100%. Democrats is, yeah. is what I've heard. Yeah. I guess in terms of voting systems, so that's something that kind of links to, to one thing that I've been thinking about, which is like supposing that the end for this government is nigh, right? Famously one of the things that they said that they were going to oh do, my Lord. Yeah. which is like, I think I've completely <sighs> forgotten about this. And then every now and again, I think about the 2015 election, just to like set the scene, happened a month and a half into me being in university. Um, I couldn't vote yet because I was like 16, about to turn 17 when the election happened, which was great for getting out of like canvassers trying to talk to me on campus. I was like, I can't vote. Don't talk to me. But it was like just a ridiculous atmosphere on university campus, right? Because university campuses tend to skew like generally more like center left as opposed to center right. Everybody was tired of Harper. It was downtown Toronto, right? So not a lot of uh, Harper conservatives running around on a university campus in downtown Toronto, uh, although there were a couple. It was just like an electric time to be on campus, and it was exciting, and it was like, oh my God, we're going to have all this you know, hope and hard work, sunny ways, all this positive change. What's all happened? Uh, no electoral reform. Mm -hmm. Pipelines happening still. Mm -hmm. We have women in cabinet now, which is cool, mm -hmm. uh, because it was 2015. The year continues to increase by one number every year, and so we still have a 50% female cabinet. Electoral reform, do you think it's something that can ever actually happen? Like, is there any real chance that it, we're going to see that happen in this country? And supposing it could happen, what would be, like, your magic wand thing? Because I know you kind of alluded to, like, it's a bad bargain, the system we have right now. What would you like to see? assuming all were possible. I think it can happen. I think there's a slight, slightly higher chance it happens provincially first somewhere, or maybe just provincially. Mm -hmm. Federally, it's a real tough battle because uh, 
for one, the federal parties are not particularly interested in it. Two, you're going to have to fight with provinces over it, no doubt, mm -hmm. and there'll be a constitutional challenge, I'm almost certain. Yeah. So it's going to be tough federally. Uh, the moment arose in 2015, and I, I think PR advocates, institutional PR advocates in Parliament blew it largely. Yeah. I think the NDP blew it. They should have committed the government to a formal, clear process. They didn't, and so we got rolled. But uh, it could happen. Quebec keeps promising it. PEI got kind of close. BC tries every few years, so the NDP is kind of half-hearted about it. Ontario even tried for I God's sake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 2007, yeah. And so uh, it, it might happen. And I support proportional representation. Um, it's basically the, the idea that the number of seats you get in Parliament is roughly proportional to the number of votes you got in a given region. I think that's a great way to make sure that um, you know there's a fair distribution of seats. That's my my preferred system right now is is called mixed member proportional. You know you have a local representative under that one, and then you have a proportional side that balances out the number of votes. So it, it could happen, and it forces a government to be broadly representative in a way that it, that it isn't now. So it could happen, but it's tough, and I, I'm not betting on it anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that for me, like, I was very, like, lukewarm, actually, on electoral reform during the 2015 election. I think specifically because I was, like, not that convinced we were going to get a system that was any better. I feel like the the thing that the liberals were running on was, like, they kind of liked single transferable vote, if I remember right. Well, that would have been good because, because so that's technically a PR system. Part of the problem is, is PR is extraordinarily complicated mm -hmm. in a really annoying way. And what the liberals wanted, but never really expressly said, was what's known as an alternative vote, which is a ranked ballot like you would have in a single transferable vote, but only one member per riding. Right. Whereas under STV, you would have multiple you members. You could have multiple, yeah. The alternative vote is basically this. You have a ballot, you rank your preferred candidates, and you run through rounds until mm -hmm. somebody gets a, a majority. So that's liberals like that because it has a tendency to kind to of prefer move towards the, the center. Party. Yeah, yeah. I guess like is STV with like multiple members. It's like kind of what they have in Ireland. That's exactly what they have in yeah, Ireland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what what do you, what's your read on kind of like supposing this government falls next year in two years? What do you think the legacy of it is going to be? Like, how are we going to regard this in the future? Because I think right now I feel very cynical about like, well, you know eight years in government and what do we have? I mean, I'm gonna critique the liberals and Trudeau first at a, at a broad level and then try to say some moderately to, nice, to, to properly nice things about mm -hmm. them. The first is, I mean, the government has fundamentally upheld the neoliberal status quo and marketization of most of our lives. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there has been no fundamental structural change about the way the economy is organized or the way that working life is organized. It's still fundamentally liberal. Uh, small L liberal, so there's been no big structural change mm -hmm. on that level. People like me, who happen to be socialists, think that's bad. That's point one. So that that's the fundamental critique. And no matter what else they've done, that's still a problem. Haven't gone hard enough on climate change. Have cost us lots of time on that. That's a problem too. They have got some stuff done that I think uh, are, are genuine legacy pieces, flawed as they might be. Carbon pricing, which is too low, that's a thing. That it's been introduced into the lexicon. It's it's on the agenda. It's becoming normalized. Carbon pricing. Okay, that's that's something. The Canada Child Benefit lifted a lot of people out of poverty. I think that's probably the jewel in the crown mm -hmm. of the whole thing when we look back on history uh, across history. That's probably the thing. That's no slouching achievement. It's a big one. 
We'll see what happens with the childcare bargains, but the mm -hmm. childcare thing is probably going to help lots of people as well, even if it's not done the way that some folks would prefer it to have been done. Uh, you can say the same thing about dental care. Super inadequate. I don't like means-tested programs particularly. Incidentally, it looks an awful lot like an, the NDP plan from a few years ago, which says lots about the NDP. But, but <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you've got a, a dental program as well as, as a child care program being produced. And that's, that's something as well. Uh, you add all that up, and it's not the worst thing in mm -hmm. the world. I certainly prefer the liberals to the conservatives. There is at least a sort of belief in all of those accomplishments that the state does have some role to play in mm -hmm. the lives of its citizens. Yeah. I think one thing that this government keeps claiming that they're doing and then hasn't done seriously, and I think that the thing that might sink them in the end in terms of like winning an election, is that the conservatives are weirdly the only people talking seriously about housing. Oh yeah, I, I don't know what the liberals are doing on housing. Uh, they, they tend to do this thing where they put their foot on the brake and the gas at the same time, you know, like the home savings program. Like, mm -hmm. oh, we're gonna help people buy a first home. It's like, ah, uh, you're gonna give people more money to buy a house that is kind of the problem is that there's this, too much money. The, houses, you, people keep taking out more loans and accessing more money yeah. to buy houses. And, 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 and exactly, and I mean, here's the thing, like, they were saying they were going to review housing as an asset class. And that was the first time I was like, oh, maybe there's actually something in here. And I wouldn't rule it out that that somewhere someone actually takes that seriously. But they're not really willing to do something, you know, fundamental on, mm -hmm. say, you know, changing the nature of housing as, as an asset, decommodifying housing, or putting money back into Social building housing. public housing, yeah. which was built for a long time until the Critchane government came and, and gutted it. There's been none of that. And so it hasn't really transformed. The provinces have failed too. A lot of municipalities have failed. No one's really doing anything on housing. The conservatives are at least talking about it, mm -hmm. but I don't trust them on it anyway. I think it's their thing is like, oh, we need more supply, but then assuming that it's going to be like a market-based solution. Yeah. And like certainly more supply is generally good, I would say, but like the kind of supply that I feel like they're likely to promote is like, okay, who is this for? I yeah. do find it very funny that Poiliev is going to these rallies and saying like, how are you supposed to get a girlfriend if you're living in your mom's basement? What do you do if you're 35 and you're living in your mom's basement? How do you even bring home a date? And, and a lady said very carefully. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? So true. It, you know, it's funny is, is he said that to a crowd of people that looked like they were... They None were of them were living in their, their mom's basement. Theory, and they weren't living in their mom's basement. No, you know but what? It, was a good, it, was, it wasn't a bad line. It's a good line. And you know what? Maybe they're thinking about their kid in their basement that they really want to leave. That's a good point, actually. I think maybe that's who he's playing to. Maybe that is a good point. It's like, oh man, I want to get my son out of here. I need my son to get out of here, get a wife, grandkids... Lock it down. Yeah, it's the Canadian dream not to have your kid trying to um, yeah. bring home a date to your basement. That's the Canadian dream. It's a very modest dream. It's a very, you know, forget the picket fence. I just want my son out of my house. <laughs> One of the many reasons I don't have kids. Yeah, yeah. Can't See, this is how you can avoid this problem, I guess. I like disposable income. Mm -hmm. Yeah, double income, no kids. Not a bad life. No, it's not too bad. I guess sort of my, my last thing, you famously to me, I guess, and perhaps also to our listeners, uh, wrote a book called Too Dumb for Democracy. How can we be less stupid about democracy? Oh, my Lord. Uh, incidentally, a book that's finally going to get a uh, life as an audio book and as, as a book in the United States. So it's a little book that could. It's still plodding along, which is cool. Uh, I mean, th there's a bunch of things we can do. The, the first thing is... Uh, time is important. You have to deliberately carve out time to want to think about this stuff. I mean that, so that's one of the things that you can do as an individual, but we can also do socially, politically. 
uh, you've got to vary your sources of information and really start questioning what you're reading, why you're reading, and what it says, and who's saying it, and why. Mm -hmm. I mean, that stuff, you've got to do that work. And, and the, so the premise of the book is basically this. You're not born being able to hit a fastball. It's really hard to hit a fastball. It's also really hard to make good, rational, consistent political decisions. You're not born being able to do that mm -hmm. because we're far more emotional creatures than the kind of enlightenment, rational, calculative machines that we're told that we are, but we aren't. So you've got to carve out space for that. Uh, we also need resources. People need not just time, but money and access to stuff so that they can, they can actually do these things. It's not just a, an education problem. It's a material problem, as is always the case. And then the government, on the government side, we need to introduce more participatory elements to our democracy. Things like participatory budgeting, which does happen in Canada and around the mm -hmm. world, but could happen more. And citizens' assemblies, which are great ways to make decisions on, on certain things. Not everything, but mm -hmm. on certain things. Um, and finally, the, the, one of the, the sort of core bits of advice I have is try to kick yourself off of cognitive autopilot. Because mm. it's really easy to go through the day saying, well, okay, I believe this, I think this, because I don't know why, I just do. Uh, I don't like this person, so my gut says I'm going to go bash them over the head because I just think they're a prick and I don't want to have a real discussion, which, fair enough, I feel like that all the time. But if the goal is to come to good conclusions that represent what you truly believe based on evidence and, and thought, you need to really kind of kick yourself off of, of what I call cognitive autopilot and learn to check your emotions. Because mm -hmm. emotions are remarkably powerful, necessary things. If you were to remove emotions from politics, you wouldn't have perfect decision makers, you'd have psychopaths. So you want emotions, but you need to learn to use them as the tools they are and not let them use you. And if you can put all that together, you can actually you know, produce some pretty good thinking and some pretty good decisions, but you gotta want it. And mm -hmm. some, some days that's pretty tough. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when the Women's World Cup will be in its elimination rounds. Can Christine Sinclair and Team Canada go all the way this year? We will find out. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. You can find David Mosscrop on Twitter at David underscore Mosscrop, and on Substack at David Mosscrop. And also, plug, check out his book, Too Dumb for Democracy. I've read it. It's good. As of the time of recording, Christine Sinclair is the all-time leader for goals scored in international competition among all soccer players, men and women. She's also one of only three players to have scored a goal in five separate World Cups. Hopefully she can make it six this year. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azrie with additional production by Tony Wong and Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.